Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me as ever is the lady who is always as chilly as a refrigerated provolone, commissioning editor, Thea Lenarduzzi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I should say, actually, I am... Um, it's warm I, uh, in here today. It is. It's, 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 it's too warm for me, obviously. I'm melting. Yeah, it's not right. Um, but no, a friend of the TLS podcast yes. uh, from China brought me cheese. Because of your, was yes, it, was it Chinese she, cheese? No, it wasn't. Oh. Thankfully, it was it was Swiss well, cheese. Thankfully, they're not famed for their. No, but that their would dairy. be expect. Imagine if imagine if you you tried Chinese cheese. I do remember when I was in in Shanghai actually spotting down a little um, alleyway a bar called Chocolate Plus Cheese, which I just thought was. Did you go in? No, I didn't. It was closed. <laughs> tellingly, <laughs> you seem to show no interest whatsoever in the Chinese dairy industry here. <laughs> I find that very troubling. Anyway, last week we challenged listeners to review the podcast in the style of hard-boiled fiction, which is quite difficult, but uh, they have done it. We've got a good one. Step forward. We can't read it all because it's quite long. It's very well written. James <laughs> Cullimore, you genius. Thea, here is a review or part of a review of the podcast in the style of hard-boiled fiction. Read us a bit from it, right. if you will. Halfway sober and committed to it, I helped myself to a cup of coffee and then three more treated my hands to an ice bath and listened to Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon. That cleaned up ex-hack still has the run of the place. And as much as I hate to admit it, he wasn't bad. He wore his erudition like a cocktail wears a glass. He was natural, inviting. He knew his stuff. They all did. When this blows over, I thought, and I've picked up a new suit, a hot shave and a holiday and a paycheck, I might consider a TLS subscription. It's Excellent. good. It is good. That so was, it, was, good. it was hard-boiled... Uh, Excellent. Exactly right. James now, Cullimore. James Cullimore, <laughs> congratulations. This is not easy to do. Pastiche, I think, is one of the great difficult things, but very fun. So, can you beat that? This week, the style in which we would like you to leave an iTunes review is a Shakespearean soliloquy in blank verse, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> Look, no one said this is going to be easy. This is, this is the TLS podcast. This is not messing around here, are we, Thea? I thought you'd give us an example. No, I was going to, and then I thought I would do it badly, and I don't want to put people <laughs> off. Few Shakespearean lines in blank verse to review 
this podcast. Go on to iTunes and review it there, and we will read out those of Cullymore Standard, the new gold standard, next That's week. That's going to be tough to beat. Tough to beat, but we're going to give it a go. <laughs> this week on the show... Just how odd was Isaac Newton? As well as being Britain's greatest mathematician, he was also an alchemist, a millenarian and a fervent anti-Trinitarian, happily wallowing in all sorts of conspiracy theories and strange magical symbols. Oliver Moody will introduce us to that Newton, who you might not have come across. And has the Cold War ended? Not as straightforward a question as you might think. The historian David Motterdell will be on the line to offer his thoughts. Isaac Newton was born in 1643 and died in 1727. He was then one of the godfathers of the Enlightenment, a mathematician and physicist who did much to establish humanity's understanding of the natural laws that surround us. He helped to establish such profound truths that the sun was the centre of the solar system and the existence of gravitational forces. His book, The Principia, is one of the most important published in Britain, but almost impossible to read. Indeed, we shouldn't, according to Oliver Moody, imagine Newton as some sort of cool-headed, lab-coated figure of clarity and control. Moody, reviewing Priest of Nature by Rob Eilif this week in the TLS, describes him thus. Equal parts litigator, millenarian, numerologist, moralist and paranoid conspiracy theorist, Newton probed the foundations of orthodoxy and found them wanting. Newton, a prickly and profoundly ornery recluse, was not what you would call a science communicator. So who or what was he? Oliver Moody joins us in the studio now. Oliver, welcome. Hello. Um, the the basis of of, of your piece in, in this book is is the religious thought of of Newton. How important is that to our understanding of him? Do you think? I think if you want to understand what Newton <coughs> achieved in the realm of science in terms of the legacy that he's left to us today, it is minimally important. But if you want to understand how a mind that had this capacity to hermetically isolate itself from the assumptions and follies of its age and pursue these trains of inquiry with this amazing independent rigour, then it's profoundly important. Because he was an iconoclast, in a sense, in, in the realm of religion. He was interested in what he believed was the truth rather than what was surrounding him. It's fair to say that had his theological writings been made public during his lifetime, his career would have been a train wreck. And maybe never he would have, he would have, never, he would have been kicked out of Cambridge. Um, very possibly, yeah. There are examples of other people with sort of similarly heterodox dissenting views whose um, whose livelihoods were destroyed effectively when it became known. So, what are these views? One of them is anti-Trinitarian. So, this is the this is the the view that Jesus was um, part of God, contained godliness. He didn't believe that. He believed that Jesus was was separate from God. Well, you you should probably go back a bit further to um, Noah, and okay. um, Newton has this very radical to modern ears idea that God handed down at the dawn of history to man a uh, authentic and pristine understanding of the universe and that subsequent generations had only managed to corrupt it and that includes um, Jesus Christ unfortunately (laughs) so um, as you are going through time you have these layers of misunderstanding and distortion accreting around the core of truth Um, And Newton believed very firmly that there were people in history who had understood the essential truth and had managed to frame it in very kind of esoteric 
writing and that scripture as revealed was one of the ways in which you could you could get to it but it was hard um this stuff was was very heavily kind of riddled and was only really accessible to an elect few and so he thought things like the the Stonehenge or, or, or sort of ancient symbols like that were more likely to tell the truth than, say, the New Testament. Newton had an exceptionally geometric mind. He loves seeing numbers and truth manifested in shapes. So in the Old Testament's description of the layout of the Temple of Solomon, if you have the kind of mind that's alive to number and sees the universe as this great concatenation of geometry then it's absolute catnip and he sort of sees these echoes of the formula for calculating the volume of a hemisphere in Solomon's temple and he sees echoes of this in the way that temples have been laid out since time immemorial including Stonehenge with this idea of the the planets orbiting the sun and this somehow encapsulating the relationship of God to the universe. Did he have a bit of a, a kind of a messiah complex himself? I mean, he saw himself as an envoy who was, who was sort of put here to, to reveal this truth and the correct way to, to worship or believe. So, yes, Professor um, Eilif, who, who wrote this book, who's the director of the um, Newton Project at the University of Oxford, says Newton never quite explicitly says this, but what radiates out from his private religious writings is this sense that just as the prophets, including Jesus, came to kind of clarify this pristine prisca sapientia, the ancient truth, and sort of scrape off the barnacles, he felt himself to be one of these people whose duty was to reform Christianity and set it back on the right path. So he was kind of the ultimate fundamentalist. You could argue that. Yeah, if you if you talk about fundamentalism in the very classic sense of going back to the fundamentals of scripture and really starting your interpretation of religion from first principles then yeah I think you could say he was a fundamentalist and you link him you think he reminds you of sort of Islamic scholars in in that respect is that right definitely I mean there's always something a bit showy and provocative about these parallels I mean I remember a classical scholar who once said that ancient Athens was was more like um, Afghanistan under the Taliban than it was like um, the modern world but um, I, it really struck me as I was reading this book that the golden age of Arabic philosophy is surprisingly good as an analogy to get across the sheer salience and difficulty of religion in an age when people are starting to ask quite profound scientific questions about the world at the same time. At the same time as sort of being still being bound by, by whatever the, the, the faith is. Yeah, and also at the same time as having to politically manage an incredibly schismatic and difficult period when people are trying to work out the formal observances of faith. So you can see um, there's a lovely potted history in this book of the um, liturgy in Trinity College, Cambridge, where Newton was was a fellow and then the Lucasian professor of mathematics. And um, so when Charles I's Archbishop William Lord comes along in the 1630s and tries to impose this very Catholicising interpretation of scripture, um, Trinity gets a write-up as being one of the kind of slovenly, quite sloppy people and um, they're sort of ordered to uh, put their altar up in a prominent position and stick a crucifix Mm. up. And then in um, the 1650s, when the Commonwealth comes along and you get this more puritanical Presbyterian approach, out go the um, images of the Virgin Mary and the organs packed up and put in storage. And then when you have the Restoration in 1662, you get the Act of Uniformity and it's like, right, lads, back to the Church of England... And what's Newton doing at this point? Is he just keeping his head down? Is this how he got away with it? Because these writings about his religious beliefs are private. Was he willing to doff the cap, really, and say, I want to be professor here, I want to pursue my mathematical studies so I know I've got to fit in? I think his position put him on a real knife edge of hypocrisy that was extremely uncomfortable to him. And he 
rode that very delicately throughout his career. Because in order to uh, matriculate at Cambridge at the time, you were required to subscribe to the 39 Articles of Faith um, of Orthodox Anglicanism. And then subsequently, there was a statutory requirement that you should take holy orders. And being an anti-Trinitarian who believed that Jesus was radically subordinate to um, the Father, um, he could not in all conscience do those things. So he basically had to fudge it for most of his life, yeah. But so he got a letter from Charles II excusing him from having to take those holy orders, didn't he? Yeah, he did, which is a pretty impressive piece of political machination. (laughs) But was his value recognised even then, though? He was seen as so brilliant that... You know, you, you, you allow the great ones to a, a bit of leeway. He, um, in 1665, 1666, when he is uh, 23, going on 24, he has what's called the Annus Mirabilis, where he makes most of his most profound guesses or um, insights into um, the nature of the universe. And then at the age of, I think, 26, I'd have to check this, he's made a full professor at Trinity College, Cambridge, um, barely two years after he'd achieved his MA. So, yeah. People recognise them. What sort of man do you think him to be? In the, in the piece, you talk about his jottings, and under the letter S, he writes, sluggard, swearer, Sabbath-breaker, shuite, sadducee, sophister, schismatic and sodomite. What, what was that? What do you think that... What, what, what were, they, were they things he was frightened of, of, of being or it was troubling him or he, he was struggling with the theology of it? What was, he, what was he doing? What sort of man do you envisage him to be? There's a lovely letter that was sent towards the end of Newton's life by his great friend, the, the Whig and liberal philosopher John Locke, to a young relative who's going off to see Newton. And um, Locke says, you know, he's, he's a very worthy man and you should treat him with with all tenderness he's one of my greatest friends he's also a nice man to deal with and a little too apt to raise in himself suspicion where there is no ground and the word nice there doesn't mean uh friendly as it would today Mm. it means um quite prickly and very pedantic and um i think newton was a extremely serious man who did not suffer fools gladly and who had internalized very intensively a lot of the outward um pietism of his age and he really lived um, this life of religious observance that a lot of people may have only paid lip service to. So even though he fundamentally disagrees with the modern church, he fundamentally dis- disagrees with the, 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 the fact that Jesus is the son of God and all of that, he still observes so closely. He's worried about breaking the Sabbath or, or, or sodomy or, or, or being idle or any of those things. He, he manages to sort of look in both directions there. He can, he can dispute the existence of the institution but still want to observe the, the basic principles. Yeah, and one of the really nice discoveries in this book for me was that um, Newton was essentially pluralist. He believed that the church should not persecute dissenters like him. Um, <laughs> But that, but that everybody should be free to um, adopt in private their own personal faith. He was really quite tolerant, unless you happen to be a, a Trinitarian, in which case he really had it in for you. <laughs> Why did he get into alchemy? There's a bit of a black shroud over that part of Newton's life, and it's not really clear um, how he got into it. One can only speculate that he had this strong sense of the world as being somehow animated by God and that matter was alive. There's this famous um, alchemical experiment from the time called the Diana's Tree where you can use um, silver to sort of grow these crystals and it really looks like it's coming alive. And I do wonder whether seeing the universe as this sort of clockwork mechanism of moving numbers might have motivated him to pursue 
alchemy. And also you have to remember that chemistry had not yet really been differentiated from this very kind of mystical stuff. So it is a way of pursuing chemistry at the same time. And he would have believed that as in concordance with his faith. So it's not alchemy in a sense in opposition to the Christian faith. It's alchemy in pursuance of that ancient wisdom that he saw manifested in all sorts of... He saw it in the pyramids, presumably, and he sees it everywhere. So it's not impious to say you can you can discover these things because it's all in the pursuit of, of the same truth. Certainly. There's this very current idea that... And it, it, I say current, it goes back really to Sir Thomas Aquinas in medieval times, that nature is a vast codex through which God's nature is revealed. And I'm sure that Newton would have regarded his alchemical researches as being just another tool for getting at that central nature of reality. So he's kind of modern. He's kind of, he's sort of almost transcendentalist, you know, sort of that idea of pantheism, the idea of that God is, is sort of through everything. And it seems weird because at some level he's modern, because you say he's pluralist, but at another level he's um, deeply of his time and also of an ancient time. He's sort of a conflicting figure in that regard. Certainly. I, th- I think you have to come at it in a very nuanced way because um, so there has been a, a tendency to interpret uh, Newton's philosophy as, as deist, this idea that uh, God is, is, is kind of present in, in everything and that it doesn't really matter what received scripture says. But that's not true. Newton took the word of scripture incredibly seriously. You can see him sort of DJing with all of these dis- different apparatus criticuses and these different readings of the Old Testament and all the patristic sources, he really wants to know what is the underlying meaning of the religious text he was working with. The point of this book, you say, doesn't quite do what you want it to, that we should consider Newton strange and new again. Uh, It nearly takes you there, but doesn't. Why does that matter? Why do we need to look at Newton afresh, do you think? I think there are two reasons, really. The first is that, as Professor Eilif points out, Newton was, in his theological thinking, very much a prototype for the radical independence and burning away of all assumptions that the Enlightenment represented. And we could kind of do, in many ways, in modern thought, with going back to that, this this bravery and this willingness to, to kind of take on the assumptions that people think with and, t- and sort of sear away all the stuff that encrusts what might be true. And the other way I think we could benefit from looking again at Newton is for certainly scientists to have a much stronger appreciation of the nuances and beauties and subtleties of religious thought and the way that that can lead to insights in its own right. Because otherwise we say science, and I'm guilty of this as an an atheist, I think, science is in opposition to religion. Mm. And I've had this debate with Rupert, who's our religious editor, where you know a lot of the great scientific discoveries are, of course, by deeply religious people. Mm. Uh, and although the church has not necessarily had a proud history in always supporting those views, they are connected with spirituality at, at some sense. Is that kind of your fundamental belief that we can recognise that spirituality can be in support of science rather than being its opponent? Yes, I think so. And that's, that's the lesson of Newton? Yes, one of them. One of them, okay. That's a good good place to, to leave it. Oliver Moody, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It has become commonplace to hear our current political predicament described as Cold War 2.0, a supposedly new era defined by antagonism between East and West, stoked by the increasingly sophisticated and pervasive use of technology and media to bait and subvert, not to mention the ever-present threat of mushroom clouds to rival those of 60-odd years ago. But the assertion of a Cold War 2.0 would seem to suggest that Cold War 1.0, whose dates are usually given as 1947 to 1989, had ended – as David Motterdell shows in a review of a book by Odd Arne Vestad, The Cold War, A Global History, it's highly contentious to draw any such line, to suggest that the toppling of the Berlin Wall marked anything more than the start of a new phase in the old Cold War. David Motterdell joins us on the line now. David, so Odd Arne Vestad, if, if that is indeed how one pronounces <laughs> his name, um, I mean, not just in in this book, but in his wider writing, he's making two main points, really, I think. One, that the Cold War never really ended. And two, that it always was and is far more global than general accounts have suggested. So if we could start with that first point, it it would seem to me to be self-evident that the Cold War never ended. Why? What what are the cases for and against this line of thinking? Westward challenges this conventional narrative. Um, Yes, on 9th November 89, the Berlin Wall fell. Yes, two years later, the Soviet Union was dissolved. Some triumphalist observers, of course, most notably Francis Fukuyama, (laughs) declared the end of history. Um, And yet, according to Westert, um, the the victory narrative um, is flawed. And uh, he made the point also in a recent op-ed in the New York Times, uh, which was then caused a huge debate. And he might not be wrong, because um, the Cold War did indeed not end everywhere. Uh, in some parts um, of the world, think of Cuba, North Korea, China, um, old communist regimes remained in power. And uh, Cold War geopolitical thinking prevailed in many capitals, be it in Moscow, be it in, 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 in Washington or in London. And Cold War alliances too persisted. So think, think, for example, of the ties between Moscow and Damascus, which we are currently experiencing, especially in the war in Syria. Um, but also between uh, Washington and Riyadh, for example. And uh, some of the Cold War conflicts um, also continued. Um, think of the tensions between the U.S. and North Korea um, at the moment. Um, and even the tensions between the Soviet Union and um, the U.S. never really went away. And today, Putin is promising Russians the restoration of Moscow's global superiority 
And the West is, of course, not completely innocent here um, because of um, its reckless policies. Um, after the fall of the war, the eastward expansion of NATO, the West's international sidelining of Russia, the isolation of Russia, um, and the American wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, all these, these things didn't really help to bring these old Cold War conflicts really to a close. Do you think we're geared up? Because one of the things that's constantly written about, it, it seems to me, is that our armed forces, you know, the, the armed forces in the Cold War were at a peak, it, it, far, far outweighing what they are now. If the Cold War is persisting and even developing in, into another phase, one of the striking aspects of that will be militarily lots of countries, not America, but pretty much every European country, is no longer militarised in the same way. Yes, absolutely. So um, this this was the result, basically, of um, um, eighty nine. Um, but um, at the moment, we're seeing we're seeing also the opposite trend, basically, of of countries rearming again, of um, the U.S. basically um, pursuing a new nuclear strategy, of um, Chinese military expenditures um, going through the roof. Even the Germans um, discussing um, spending two percent of the G- GDP on on the military. So. It's not a new arms race. It's not like in the Cold War, but um, there's a trend, basically, that goes in that direction. How far up to date does does this study bring us? Does does he tackle the, the annexation of Crimea in, in, in 2013, the role of Russia yeah. in the US election, all of that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's basically, that's where the book ends. It basically ends, ends today, and the New York Times piece, which I mentioned, is basically yeah, a synthesis, a summary um, of the last part of his book, and... Uh, yeah, so he tells everybody who's wondering whether we are stumbling into a new Cold War, uh, the old Cold War really, really ever end. The role of Russia, the, the Russia interfering in the US election, we kind of accept that as a sort of normal state of affairs now, that it, it, that it, it appears by any standards to be accepted by lots of people it took place. And yet it feels that if that were going on 30 or 40 years ago or 50 or 60 years ago, that I know it's a big story and I know people are sort of talking about it, but the scale of of Russia meddling in a democratic process in the US feels like an extraordinary event that, in common with lots of extraordinary things that go on in America now, we kind of normalise as we think about it. Yes, absolutely. And this is, this is what Westhead would call uh, one of the continuities of the, of the Cold War, one of the, one of the examples um, of, of Cold War rivalries um, um, continuing, flaring up again. And um, even more, I mean, Westhead is, is a historian of modern China, um, so he's even he's emphasizing even more than than, than Russia. He's emphasizing the rise of China and um, Chinese um, global geopolitical competition with with the U.S. That's that's one of his main themes. And, and so, what does what projections does he make about the future of of global relationships? Not really. I mean, he doesn't really um, give any any predictions. I mean, he, you know, he's a historian, so he's. <laughs> He's cautious um, about these kind of things. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a history book. So he's basically just suggesting that we should be careful when we talk about these kind of caesuras, like the 89 caesura, and um, that there are also continuities. But he's not really making any, any major predictions, apart perhaps from the, from the rise of China, which he thinks will continue. And um, so I think for him, the, the great geopolitical rivalry of the future will be between the U.S. and, and China. Um, but apart from that, he's he's um, he's relatively cautious of making any any prediction. Do you feel that um, it's plausible, at least, that mm. um, there will become new areas of tension between parts of Eastern Europe, 
and Russia. This sort of slight dance that's gone on where Russia moves uh, weapons up to uh, parts of its border. You know, it, it's gone into Crimea. Um, mm. The general debate about the future of NATO seems to rest on this notion of the extent to which Putin's Russia is a viable threat towards Eastern Europe. Do you think there's a there's a structure in place where this can be managed or will it be carry on being managed as it is now, which is a lot of, lot of noise but not very much actually happening? Yeah, this is very difficult to say, but uh, we have to see probably the conflict also um, from Russia's perspective because um, their experience basically is massive eastward um, expansion of NATO. Um, so, so they felt that their borders were, were, were under threat too. So um, in a way... Um, they try to establish kind of like new status quo. Um, I don't think that um, we'll see a Russia expanding into Eastern Europe again, like during the Cold War. I don't think there will be an invasion of the Baltic states. But um, again, that's prediction, so I should be <laughs> careful here. But you do you regard Putin's behaviour thus far? Do you, um, where should we regard him in the, I suppose, in 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 the pantheon of of Russian leaders is he? Because some people you speak to say he's a real risk to global peace, and other people say he's he's more sinned against than than sinning in in geopolitical terms. How, how do you, without projecting to the future, how do you uh, regard his his past activity? Yeah, I mean he's a ruthless he's a ruthless uh, leader both internally and externally. His uh, his his Crimean uh, the invasion of the Crimea. Um, his his policy in the Ukraine is, is obviously uh, uh, ruthless and, and not really acceptable, but he knows that um, he can do it and there's nobody who would stop him. So so he does it. Um, and no, I mean, I think this is a this is should should be a, a major concern for, for all of us, because it means that um, the international order or international laws are undermined um, that that notions of sovereignty of national independence um, don't count anymore in international relations. And that is, of course, uh, a major problem. It's clear that you think that this is an important book and, and that much of this, I think, comes down to his tone and approach. So how does this work show up the more fashionable, you, you say, new materialist view of history? Yeah, it's basically challenging in a way the new materialism because it um, Wested emphasizes the um, the ide- ideology and the importance of ideology and ideas. Um, so that's a that's a crucial crucial element of the book. And I thought it was refreshing at a time when many historians basically turned to this kind of new materialism. And you can see this, um, yeah, throughout the book, even in the beginning. I mean, um, Wester's reflections on the beginnings of the Cold War are, are particularly fascinating, because for him, the conflict begins with the emergence of the ideological antagonism between um, the capitalists and the socialists in the 19th century. Both offered blueprints for the organization of society, both offered solutions for the problems of modernity. And then in 1917, and this is really the crucial year for him, um, this ideological battle was translated into great power politics um, with um, the Russian Revolution, um, but at the same time um, also with America's entry into the First World War, which then led to, well, America becoming a great power. This ideological intellectual conflict is really at the center, and to some extent this argument is similar to Eric Hobsbawm's um, concept of the short 20th century, the, the age of extremes, right, which for Hobsbawm also spans from 1917 to 89 defines the 20th century as this battle between capitalism and communism um, and West makes a relatively similar argument but on a global scale um, which um, yeah makes this book more fascinating I think than um, the age of extremes listeners I might not know what do we so what, what what would a new materialist rendering of that same 
argument be? That that would be more about events that that took place than than the ideas behind them. Is that is that the point? Yeah, I mean, there is basically a new trend in, in historical scholarship, at least as I see it, um, a, a new interest in, in economic history, um, topics that scholars explored in the 1970s, like industrial revolution, industrialization, and so on, are, are, are hot again. Natural resources, all these kind of topics are important again. And Cold War historians, too, have, have more and more, it was a kind of trend, Cold War historians basically emphasized more and more the... Um, were material economic factors in determining the the Cold War, um, rather than ideology. And, uh, well, ideology mattered, and um, Wested puts ideology in a way back on the map. Yeah, and I, I would have thought that now um, is, is the perfect time to do that. You know, we're, I mean, we're witnessing uh, Brexit, the process by which a country has elected to make itself considerably less well-off. Oh, so identity, so, so in a world of identity politics, things like identities, which is a form of ideology, matter perhaps more now than ever. Absolutely. And there is, we have, so over the last two or three years, basically, after Brexit, after Trump's victory in the US, we see that historians turn a bit more, again, to ideology. And perhaps we can see Wested's work as part of this process. So there's new conferences, say, on the global history of fascism, the global history of communism is, is rediscovered. So we have that trend too. But still, overall, there is this kind of new materialism, which perhaps was also driven by real-world events, like the last major economic um, crisis, yeah. um, which basically led historians to... It's an interesting point that I had never thought of this, because I'm not a professional historian, but how current events shape the method of history which then of course reflects on on how we consider the past is that is that is that a process do you think that happens all the time with history it's it's subject very much to current trends and current modes of thought which then impacts on how we look at the past absolutely yes historians don't live or work in a vacuum um they they take in influences from the outside world you can see huge boom in in environmental history the history of environmental movements in the 90s just with the rise of green politics across the, well, at least the Western world. You have a similar development with the cultural turn in the 90s, which was driven by identity politics, by books, for example, like um, Huntington's um, Clash of Civilizations. So, yes, historians in the real world are always in dialogue. How interesting. David, thank you very much indeed. Yes, my pleasure. And that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Motterdell and Oliver Moody. Do pick up a copy of this week's TLS or subscribe to us online. This week we go all out on matters historical, but we also investigate dandies, dervishes, buskers and the magazine Vanity Fair. And Thea, you have written in the paper... Yes, I have. You reviewed Lady Bird. <laughs> Accusation. No. <laughs> it's just true. It is true. The much, uh, Lady Bird, it's the much Oscar-nominated coming-of-age drama movie by Greta Gerwig, who has a name that makes you think of a character in an indie movie, I think. Greta yeah. Gerwig. It sounds like it's a true. She's all but kind of inseparable from that whole world of mumblecore. slightly quirky indie. Yeah, the whole mumblecore thing. Uh, mumblecore is an actual thing. Well, I mean, yes, I, and I wrote in my piece that it was only ever half seriously called that, but it wasn't really even half. It was sort of not even half seriously. I think the story goes, uh, one of the sound engineers on, on, on one of the films complained about not being able to make out what the characters were saying. It was all, it was all mumbled and people were sort of talking into their own chests and so he... He See, came up with the term and everyone found it quite funny and then it, and then it stuck because of course it's ironic the and, yeah and yeah. the media need these these terms well I didn't realize until we had a we had a podcast about fashion do you remember we were talking about yeah normcore normcore yeah but that just means normal 
Well, it, yeah, but it means sort of... What does core do? What, what is the word core doing in all of this? I don't know, actually, whether it's something to do with essence or... Is it hardcore? It must be from Yeah, that. I mean, it comes, it comes yeah. from that. So it's yeah. an essence of mumble. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you like it? I did. I, I, I liked it more than I was expecting to because in the past I have I have struggled with the kind of affected quirkiness which tends to be associated with with that school of filmmaking but i i liked it i think because i i wanted to look at it seriously and and look at what it was doing that maybe other people hadn't noticed perhaps or yeah. hadn't hadn't thought was interesting and maybe my piece is boring um but i think it's interesting that greta gerwig is is uh, an english student she did english at university at barnard i think and yeah. she's co-written a number with noah baumbach and this is her first where she's written the whole the whole thing and directed it uh, but she she peppers her her films uh, with literary references and, and they're very aware not in an annoying way yeah. but in an interesting way so uh, Lionel Trilling is is the the person who sort of I, I kick off with because uh, there's a reference to Trilling in in the very beginning of uh, Francis Ha, which is a film that some people loved and some people hated. My friends told me that I would hate it and. I sort it. of did, but I also sort of appreciated what it was doing. The, the most contentious part being that uh, Baumbach chose to film in black and white. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> but I sort of admire the the strength of that of that decision. You know, to to take a bold aesthetic decision and yeah. to say that you know this this story about two millennial kind of uh, women, young women in New York, is worthy of that kind of a treatment that would normally be associated with, you know, boys coming of age, yeah. uh, Truffaut and all of that sort of stuff. So, And this is a film, Lady Bird, is very much about the mother-daughter relationship, isn't it? It is, yeah. And uh, I think that was the working title, was Mothers and Daughters. Really, and interestingly so, do you think? Yeah, absolutely interestingly so. I mean, because there aren't, there, there aren't really that many films made about that specifically. No. Uh, and I think um, one of the... Um, studios that, that's associated with this film is uh, A24 and they make a lot, they at the moment seem to be making a concerted effort to refocus uh, the stories so there's, uh, they had the Flo the Florida Project yeah. uh, recently which was again a very very different film about a mother and a daughter uh, and then there are, there are a few others that sort of come at it from the woman's perspective but really I couldn't think when I was watching the film of that many others other films about girls coming of age yeah. um, and and the the mother. It was um, Céline Chamas' film about three years ago called Girlhood, which I also yeah, reviewed for yeah, the paper. I remember that. Which I thought was an absolutely brilliant study of of, of a, a girl becoming a woman uh, against the backdrop of uh, the French banlieue, the Parisian banlieue uh, ghetto, basically. And um, and there aren't that many. And also, this is a film. It struck me looking at it that was made by a 30-year-old. Mm, I think a, she's 34. With yeah. a lead who's like a 20-year-old. Yeah. So I think it's probably a that very rare thing, which would be a young woman's film. Yeah. Because all the major directors who are female are, I imagine, in their 40s and 50s now, and Catherine Bigelow, people like that. And so this is a, a rare thing where it's a film about adolescence and, yeah. and, and, and coming of age, but a lot of the people involved in it will be of that age or can remember that age very vividly. Yeah, and interestingly also um, Catherine Bigelow was, I think, the last woman to win an Oscar, the best well, she was the last woman to win the best director. Uh, and the first. Oscar, especially. the first and last. <laughs> and one of the things that people said again and again was, uh, oh yes, but her films are very, very blokey, very manly, because, you know, it's war. 
and, and all of this, all of that sort yeah. of stuff. And so now Greta Gerwig comes along, and her film is is very much not about. It's about a private war, I suppose, an internal uh, individual war for identity, for uh, sense of self, all of that sort of stuff. And it will it will be probably dismissed by some people as just you know a nice little story about coming of age in in Sacramento, California, or yeah, lovely like there's a, a lovely yeah. quality to the film. But and yet you know these are these are these are why are these not important stories? No, and it's know, got a are. buzz. I mean, I think people have taken it seriously. I don't. Mm. I think that that you can see it because it didn't. She wasn't nominated for a director of the Golden Globes, uh, and although the film was nominated for best film, mm. um, and it was seen that classic thing that women directors just don't get recognized so it was mm. it was considered i think an important step that she was at least recognized as mm. as a nominee for this mm. we'll, we'll see if she wins it and i think as, as a as a first film you know this is her first this is her directorial debut yeah. i think it is very incom- accomplished and you can see how much thought yeah. has gone into it from the writing uh to you know yes i have criticisms of it but in general the writing is 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 really good and we can all agree that Catherine Bigelow's best film is Point Break, can't we? Yes, I think so. Good, we'd have to discuss that <laughs> Lovely. No, it's a lovely review. Uh, uh, do read it. Um, that's it for us this week. Remember, you can get yourself to iTunes now and review this podcast in the style of a Shakespearean soliloquy. You can definitely do it. I really believe you can. Next week, we'll be asking the question, what connects Jewishness and comedy? Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 